When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to the Wild Tales podcast. I'm Jason Fox, and this series is all about adventure, resilience, and inspirational humans. The podcast is presented by the Book of Man and in partnership with Talisker, a single malt whiskey made by the sea. My guest today is Leveson Wood, the explorer, writer, and photographer. He's a British Army major who has gone on to achieve incredible things in the world of adventure and conservation, becoming a best-selling author and fronting documentaries like the recent Walking with Elephants. In the episode, we answer some questions that you've asked me on Instagram. I'm going to be sending a bottle of Talisker to the top question. In addition, Maltz.com are offering a 10% off promo code TALISKER15DE, redeemable at checkout on www.maltz.com until the 30th of November 2020. Discount may only be used once for individual Talisker Distillers edition products for sale at £100 or less. No minimum spend, but a delivery charge may apply. Not to be used in conjunction with any other offer, gift card purchases are excluded. 18 plus and subject to malts.com terms of sale. Here we go, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Leveson, welcome. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I am genuinely actually looking forward to this because I. I've got so this this podcast has got the potential to last a very long time because there's just too much to talk about. It can't. <laughs> so I'm trying to uh, try and keep keep things as in very interesting but very brief as well because you could basically talk for hours on each one of your um, amazing adventures because they yeah I mean it's, it's <laughs> well no thanks for having me on it's um, no it'd be good to uh, good to chat to you. Yeah, um, so right, let's crack on. But because of the times we're in, and I know this gets boring as fuck now, but how has the pandemic affected you? What have you been up to? So the first few months, I have to say, I well, the first two weeks, I was like, oh dear, right, this is this is going to really play havoc with not only like plans, but you know, this is the first time I've probably stayed still. Yeah. for more than like three weeks in my entire adult life so <laughs> but after after a few weeks you know I kind of got into a bit of a routine and I shouldn't say enjoy it but I I kind I kind of appreciated the the novelty of being at home cracking on with jobs that I'd put off for ages and tried to embrace it you know I, I did a bit of a cliche and got a lockdown puppy um he's now not so small uh he's a huge Rhodesian Ridgeback um uh, but it's been it's been all right actually it's only really since probably September that I've that I've started to really get itchy feet again and I'm definitely I'm definitely ready for uh for another adventure now what um Ridgebacks are awesome by the way I, I love them dog. <laughs> what's his name his name's Byron He's massive. He's the size of a small ginger horse. <laughs> right, mate. Um, we're going to go back to the young Leveson. 
What, where, where did you grow up and what was it like? So I grew up in Stoke-on-Trent in the early 80s. Um, both my parents are teachers. You know, they grew up in council houses. Yeah. Um, went to an estate school. Pretty, I wouldn't say a rough upbringing, but it was, you know, it certainly wasn't particularly, uh, you know, extravagant. Um, camping holidays in Wales, that sort of thing. And I think yeah. that gave me a lot of inspiration to uh to leave home at quite a young age and i was desperate to go and see the world um i knew i wanted to join the army since i was probably about 10. my granddad was in the war he fought in burma and i kind of grew up on his stories and and, and adventures from the far east really and my dad was in the ta so it was kind of the military was definitely a route that i was exploring from a really young age but as I sort of got to about 17, 18, I knew there was a big wide world out there and um, I kind of was umming and ahhing whether, whether to join the army straight away or go to university. And and I ended up sort of procrastinated by taking a gap year. Now, it's very popular these days to go off traveling, but, you know, in in in, in those days, I certainly didn't know anyone that had done it. Certainly nobody in Stoke-on-Trent that I, that I knew had been away on a gap year. Cause it just, you know, so I, I went and worked for a bit and earned enough money and, off I went and, and and it was a really formative uh trip because I, I did a you know just a lot of hitchhiking backpacking around but it stayed with me that, that a really positive experience so um after I finished university I took another gap year I think I've been on a big long gap year ever since really but um but all all those early travels that I did when I was sort of you know in my late teens early 20s when I was a student were incredible because i i did it on such a shoestring budget because i had to because i didn't have any money that mm. it kind of forced me to go and rely on the hospitality of others i hitchhiked to india once when i was 21 uh all the way from nottingham on a budget of 500 quid which doesn't sound plausible um but 500 quid which lasted me for five months and that was because I was sleeping rough. I was just sleeping, you know, at the side of the road. I was, if people invited me into their homes, I'd go in. I was eating one meal a day, if that. And it was just bloody brilliant. And um, and it taught me a lot about self-reliance, about independence and about um, trust and about um, what risk really means. Because I think a lot of the problems that stem from today are about people not really understanding risk and people getting the knickers in a twist about silly things that don't actually matter or they're not particularly dangerous and uh, forgetting the the sort of the, the far greater risk of uh, of leading a very dull and boring life and and i determined to to uh, to not do that from from a very young age mate so basically your gap year consisted of living like john rambo <laughs> it wasn't far off in parts of in parts of russia i tell you you're a vagrant <laughs> yeah but no it was it was um it was it was a really interesting experience and um and one that stayed with me and i've tried to take that ethos of of living frugally um of you know accepting the kindness of strangers and and looking for the best in people i think um wherever i've gone since then and, and it's the kind of same mentality that i've tried to take with me in 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 the travels that i do now yeah what um just weirdly over the last month maybe just maybe the last month six weeks nearly every other person i've met is from stoke get off (laughs) i don't know what i don't know what's happened over the last six weeks i keep (laughs) gravitating towards people that are obviously from stoke it's bizarre um Mate, what 
you joined the army. Uh, you chose the Paras, yeah, which was um, obviously a very, very good choice and a, an amazing unit of, of individuals. Uh, what what made you what 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 made you join the Paras? So this was quite a funny story. So when I was at Sandhurst, you're given, um, I think you get initially three choices. And I put down my local regiment, which was Stafford's yeah, and yeah. Um, the Ink Corps, because I was a bit of a, you know, I was, I thought, okay, well, what's the most uh, sort of the opposite of the infantry, I suppose. And I, and I fancied, you know, at least exploring the idea of the Ink Corps. Mm. And um, so I had those two down as my choices. And then I, I boxed at Sandhurst. So I remember, you know, there was about however many people start the boxing and then it dwindles down to fight night when you're selected on, if well, one, if you've shown the, the commitment to turning up um, for all the training sessions and two, if you've got somebody in the right weight category. So I was very fortunate to be selected for the fight night. Won my fight. And everyone that boxed for the first time gets to go to the sergeant's mess which for a young officer cadet is quite a daunting experience. But it's the first time that you actually see your, your platoon, you know, your DS and all the staff as, um, as other humans rather than these big ogres. And they yeah. invite you into the mess and, and you, you have a few pints. And actually the Pararege rep was there and he, he came up to me and, and he, he said, oh, you know, I enjoyed, enjoyed your fight. Well done on winning. Um, why aren't you joining the Paras? And I said, well, I just didn't know whether I'd be good enough to get in the Paras, frankly. And he said, right, he said, sit down. So I sat down. <laughs> he gave me the Paris interview there and then, <laughs> asking me all about, you know, current affairs, uh, and mental arithmetic. And I was like, God knows. Anyway, I passed this test. He said, right, 6 a.m., I want you in my office for, for the second round of interviews. Bear in mind, they'd already selected the 12 cadets to get through to the final stage from about 80 applicants at this stage. For the parachute fast- regiment? For the parachute regiment. Right, okay. And I got fast-tracked to... Um, to the final 12 from from that interview <laughs> and uh, and then yeah luckily I, I got through and and you know what it was I, I kind of it's it's interesting when you look in hindsight and put join all these dots together but I think perhaps if I hadn't won that boxing match if I hadn't won that fight if I hadn't turned up for all those training sessions I wouldn't have joined the Paras and I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now yeah well um where did you so after Sanders where did you go which uh, battalion did you go to so after Sandhurst and then doing all of like the, uh, you know, two kind of battle course, P Company and all the rest of it, ended up in three para just as they were getting back from Operic 6. So as you can imagine, that was that was quite a tough time to take over a platoon. That was the first big scrapping that had happened in, you know, best part of a generation. And, uh, yeah. and then I suddenly was given 30 battle-hardened uh, paratrooper veterans. So... Hey. <laughs> yeah, they had quite a tough. They had a tough tour, didn't they? That they did. It was, it was uh, yeah, yeah. So where where were the, where were they? Um, where were you then? Was that in Do? Was that Dover? Uh, I think that was in Colchester. So I basically had eighteen months. It was another rotation. So basically, we had eighteen months. Started from scratch. Went through the whole pre-deployment training before going out on Hurricane. Um, by which time, you know, I think everyone was was ready for it again, and and uh, and I certainly was. I was I was keen to get out to Afghanistan. I'd already yeah. hitchhiked across it when I was twenty two, but um, it was it was interesting to go back, obviously, in, under a different guise. So when what what year did you hitchhike across it then? When you two thousand and four. Yeah, that is meant. We need to go right. We're going to go back. Actually, this is we're not we're not we're not going forward. So in two thousand and four. 
you is this was this on your hitchhike to India? Yeah, so this is when I was hitchhiking to India. I went through, uh, I went all the way through Russia, over the Caucasus, through like Chechnya and all that, into Turkey, hitchhiked across Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, over the Khyber Pass, and then finished up in, in India. Incredible trip. Um, was, what was it? I mean, to be fair, Afghan's not even that bad compared to some of those when you think about Chechnya <laughs> and whatnot. But what was it? What, which bits of Afghan did you? So I came in from from the Iranian border um, over into Herat, yeah, and then obviously there you kind of face three choices. You go you go the northern route, yeah, um, which is a pretty long and winding route through Badakhshan and all that, um, or you go the southern route through Kandahar, which even though it was before the it really kicked off, everyone was advising against going that southern route. Yeah. So I decided to go straight across the middle through Gore Province, Chagcharan, um, Bamiyan, all the way to Kabul that way. And um, so through the, the the sort of Tajik and Hazara areas. That's all. I mean, I I am I consider myself lucky because of I have seen an, a reasonable amount of Afghan because of who I was with at the time, but not on that level. And and those those places are it is an awesome place, and it? it's a misunderstood place. It is, and it's 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 like it's incredibly beautiful. You know, I, I mean, it was. You know, the mountains up there are just so spectacular. I was there, I think it was sort of, it was awesome. It was about this time, um, this sort of time of the year, and it was covered in snow. And like I say, I'd got, at, at this point, I'd literally, when I say I got no money, um, I'd been through, I'd got to Iran and used all my final dollars. And I'd got, I think I'd got one final traveler's check that was supposed to get me through to India. But you can't use traveler's checks in Iran. So I'd had to like, just beg, borrow and steal in Iran. So by the times that I got to Afghanistan, I was literally had about four dollars to my name um, so I was carrying on hitchhiking and luckily the Afghans are incredibly hospitable and if they if if, yeah. if they see you're hungry and anyway it was Ramadan so I didn't you, you couldn't really eat anyway so that wasn't really too much of an issue but just going into these villages and and just hoping for the best was probably a lot of people would would say it might be a little bit reckless and I probably wouldn't do it now and uh, you know at my age but as a as a 21 22 year old um looking for a bit of an adventure it was it was incredible and and actually I was looked after I ended up staying in this mujahideen um sort of fighter's house with his nine brothers and he put me up for like a week <laughs> it is that is bonkers it's awesome, but it's just like, just to put that into perspective for, for people that are listening, that was in 2004. Bear in mind in 2001 is when it actually did kick off. I know it had, yeah. it went through a period, there was a, a, a sort of a lull, I suppose. I'd say, yeah, 2003, 4, 5 was probably the lull. So if, if there was ever a safe time to go, that was probably it. But it, yeah. But that's, I mean, how, what was it like going back with the parachute as an army officer? in the did did it have any did it sway your opinions on how you were going to do business or or did it chatting to people it, it did i mean i had to be a bit careful around some of my colleagues because yeah, yeah. they didn't see any sense in why on earth i would have hitchhiked there uh, in the first place so i didn't really announce the fact that i'd been there on sort of what they <laughs> thought of as a holiday um, but from a personal perspective, I found it was it, it, give, it gave me a bit of perspective. I did a lot of reading about the place and 
read up about the history and the great game. And, and you know, my, my degree at university was all about um, colonial history. So I'd already sort of got a, a reasonable understanding of, of what the British Army had been up to there in the 1800s yeah. and, and so on. So it, I think it just gave me a bit more of a perspective and an understanding of the culture more than anything else. And hopefully a, a bit more empathy with the local people as well. Yeah, yeah. It can only be a good thing, can't it, really, to be honest. Um, okay, so we are going to move because we, we could, I could, we could talk about that for bloody yonks. But what we're going to do now is move on to uh, the Himalayas. So that is an, it, that was an undertaking to say the least. But how did how how did you transition from an army officer hmm. parachute regiment? What happened? How did you become this person that now? basically is the person that travels and walks everywhere on tv <laughs> so i left the reg back in 2010 <clears throat> um and i was kind of i was ready for a new challenge i wanted to do something a bit more um i don't know i, I kind of missed the travel for the travel's sake a bit and ended up volunteering for a charity in africa for for about 12 months and um to cut a very long story short, the, the experiences that I had in Africa um, inspired me to set up a, an expedition company. So me and a mate from the Paras, we set up a little company called Secret Compass, which specialised in that's, doing bulking. Yeah, exactly. So we set this company up and the idea was to sort of apply the, the military uh, model of, of, um, of AT and expeditions and open it up to a civvy market. So we ended up taking people like we took people horse riding across um, north and northeastern Afghanistan, the Wakhan Corridor. We, we took yeah. people camel riding across the Sudan. We went mountain climbing in uh, on the Iran-Iraq border. So all these places that people think you can't go to, actually you can with a bit of planning and preparation. And that did really well. And that kind of, it's we start getting lots of interest from TV people and, and, and the like. Yeah. And, and I was just experimenting with different um different hobbies and passions so i was doing a bit of photography and uh writing bits for magazines and newspapers and it kind of all just came together until one day uh, i was chatting to a, a, a director and he said look have you got any any ideas and we'll put you in front of the camera and that wasn't something that i'd ever contemplated it wasn't something i was looking for but i thought it's a good opportunity why not yeah um so i suggested walking the nile as the first um as the first one because it had never been done mm. And um, so that was it. That got commissioned. Um, that was back in 2013. And I spent nine months walking the length of the River Nile from the Congo-Rwanda border all the way to Egypt. Um, and, and that was quite an epic undertaking. Yeah. Um, and then I sort of had with no idea whether or not, one, it was possible, two, I was up to it, and, and three, if I'd come back alive, you know, and, and I was kind of lucky to do all three, really. Um, and then once that happened, that really sort of, um, that, that sort of start, that changed my life forever because it's, um, you know, once you're on TV, there's no real going back, I suppose. And, and luckily it was a, it was a big success. Um, wrote a book off the back of it and, um, and then the TV people kept, you know, they wanted more. So off the back of that, I've done six subsequent TV series. I've written, you know, eight more books and it's, it's been a bit of a roller coaster ride ever since. So is it a bit, I mean, I'm, I'm going to jump around again, but are you still, are you still involved with Secret Compass? 
no so i sold my bit to to tom bulkin um after the nar just because i was i was too busy sort of with the tv yeah. side of things so but they're still running um you know expeditions and yeah, they're, you know, I've, got, I've got to say i've i've worked with uh tom and and their secret compass is awesome I, that's not a, like a weird plug they <laughs> he's it they they're very good at what they do so yeah, yeah. I suppose yeah, no, it was it was it was a good um, like I say for me it was an incredible opportunity to just learn <coughs> how to apply the military mindset to the civilian mindset. It was it was a great transition, you know. We we sort of uh, um, we learned a lot in those early days. Yeah, yeah. Um, the night, I mean, the Nile was is, I mean, that's a, is when you think about the countries that it it runs through. That is an absolutely mental undertaking. But what where did the idea for the Himalayas come from? Was it off the back end of that? Off the back end of the Nile. So the Nile for me was, you know, my one of my sort of, I guess, specialities that, that I'd studied was, was like I say, colonial history. And of course, East Africa was a big part of that. So I was already interested in places like Sudan and, um, and Egypt. And then I thought, why not taking a similar idea of, of, of you know, traveling on foot along a geographical phenomenon? What, what's the next... I suppose biggest thing in 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 terms of people's imaginations, what what strikes a chord, and the Himalayas, of course, is this you know this enormous mountain range that stretches all across Central Asia. Why not walk the length of that as well? And um, and I knew it would take me through some interesting countries, and I thought where better place to start than um, the back in Afghanistan? So I started up in um, in the Wakhan corridor for that one, um, and and then yeah, went from there into Pakistan. Kashmir, India, Nepal, um, Bhutan, and then finished on the Tibet border. And, and that was another sort of, what was that? It's about 2,800 miles. Um, that took another six months. So, yeah, it was a bit of a beast as well. So what, you, <clears throat> what year was that that you did the Himalayas? That was, that was five years ago, yeah, 2015 that was. Um, and that, yeah, that wasn't without its, its problems. I mean, halfway um, through the trip, um, the irony being that it was, I was in Nepal, and they were having a bit of trouble with the with the Maoists there. So there were certain areas that were off limits and we were yeah. in one of those areas. And um, we were told by the local sort of villages that we weren't allowed to camp in, in this village. So they stuck us in a taxi and, and sort of sent us packing to the next town, which was a couple of miles away. And um, it was late at night. And uh, just as we were going over the top of this mountain pass, the brakes failed in this taxi and it went plummeting off the edge of a 400 foot cliff um, with, with me in it. And um, very, very lucky to survive. God knows how, because it rolled the car rolled about 10 times and my arm was sort of completely mangled in the wrong direction. Um, but, but yeah, that was, that was a real awakening because it, that was probably the closest to that I've come to, to really copping it. But you, you have had a few close shaves though, haven't you? On, on most most trips that you've done <laughs> yeah there's been plenty of close shaves but i think that that's what people going back to what i was saying earlier about the concept of risk it's it's rarely the sort of getting shot at or the or the getting snapped at by crocodiles or uh, or you know all those things i mean they happen of course and they're all dangerous but they're far less frequent than the more the more boring and mundane threats, which is always going to be getting in some dodgy taxi where, you know, the, the, the chance of a road traffic accident is, is always there. And, and, you know, like I say, that's, that's probably the third big accident I've had now. And, and that's far more common than anything else. Wasn't there, what, did you have one in um, South America? 
had one in no i had one in um i had one in a big one in afghanistan one in sudan and a few other minor ones along the way all right um I don't, it's, it's difficult to know where to go because there's so much, <laughs> there's so much stuff that goes on and happens but like so people listening how do you go about planning like one of the like these trips take months like where do you start where what is your start point start point i think like with any good idea it's usually over a few pints in the pub really i mean that's usually where the sort of ideas are generated they you know sometimes they come as a result of a, uh, you know a light bulb moment sometimes it's just a, you know i've got an interest in an area and then figuring out an interesting route um and i think it's it, it all begins with just being confident that you can make stuff happen doesn't matter how ridiculous it might sound you you sort of you come up with an idea and then worry about the the finer details later and um where i remember when i pitched an idea once to um to travel from uh the black sea to the caspian from russia to iran and go you know retracing part of the route that i did when i was um 21 20. a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Two. Yeah. Um, through like Chechnya, everyone thought it was absolutely bonkers, but we managed to pull it off. And and so I think it's yeah, it, these trips often take four, five, six months of planning. Um, they're often quite expensive. Um, they you need the right team, and and I've got a great team of of, of guys that I've been working with. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and you know how this works, Jason. When when you've got you know people that you trust around you and um that's that's essential it's not a one-man show it's not just me out there with my rucksack and my boots um you know i've got two or three people that, that come with me not all the time you know i'd say um you know probably sort of 50 percent of the time i'm just on my own with um with uh, local people local guides but then you know the crew which is usually never more than we always try and keep it to one car's worth so that if the shit hits yeah. the fan, we, can, we can get out of there um you know it, they're there to sort of help out along the way yeah um do you ever get is there ever do you ever get the prep slightly wrong has there ever been moments where you're like ah, shit we've we've either missed something or we've overthought something <laughs> i'd say um you know you, you can't always plan for every eventuality obviously the, the you have to leave some things to best guess and i'd probably say the best example of that was um a trip that i did two and a half years ago so i had done the nile the himalayas uh mm. walking the, the central america from russia to iran um sorry from from mexico to colombia and then 
Yeah, what was that? Yeah, so I sometimes get confused with the order. But the I remember going into um, into Colombia. Sorry, into, yeah, from Mexico to Colombia, we were in Honduras. And I don't know. Have, we, we, have you been to San Pedro Sula? No, in, in Honduras. So there's this city which um, I know you spent a bit of time with the, with the narcos and, and that lot, sort of in that neck of the woods. Yeah. We went to San Pedro Sula, which was at one point I can't remember which year it was, sort of 2015, 2016. It was like you know. They, they all claim to be the most dangerous city in the world, don't they? But but this one was um, the sort of the the, the 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 area where the two main gangs, which is MS13 and Barrio 18, yeah, um, are sort of rival gangs. And we got to this city, and to walk across the city, you've got to go through both areas. And we we'd, we'd approached lots of people, the the army, the police, and they all said, "Look, don't ask us. We just don't go there." we didn't even go there so we can't help you so we ended up having to like go and we ask around and we found this local guy who happened to be like a he was a village preacher he was like a pastor and he said look i can i can, I can get you in no problem and we thought okay and we, this guy was he had uh he got his two mobile phones out and uh, he called up the two rival gang leaders who both of whom were in jail at the time and, and they were running their respective gangs from from the jail cells um, and it was fascinating because this guy was like, look, we've got this, we've got this gringo here and he wants to walk through your, your areas. And, uh, you know, he's not from the, you know, he's not from any like big broadcaster. Um, he's just making a sort of documentary and, um, can they come through? And he said, well, what are the other guys doing? So he spoke to the other gangs and these were like, and they were kind of, it was weird because they got, it was playing them off against each other. And one of them was like, yeah, you can come into our areas. We'll, we'll show it off. And so the other gang leader was like, okay, well, he can come into our areas. And then they agreed this sort of handover in the middle. And it was one of those bizarre things because they both said, okay, well, you can come into our areas, but just give us 24 hours because we want to make sure that we clean up the graffiti and pick up all the litter. I mean, it was just bonkers. But I have to say that was a proper heart in mouth moment when we were walking through these areas and you see these kids who are like 11, 12 years old, covered in tattoos, you know, pistol down their pants, no, completely lawless. And these kids were showing us around what they called the Casa Loca, the crazy house, which is where they go and torture rival gang members. And there was like nooses hanging from the ceilings. There was bullet holes everywhere, blood stains. I mean, it was just so surreal. And to be walking around there with these like murderous, you know, it was this like the right decision to be here with no backup from anybody you know there's those moments that you think yeah you start to brick it it's with, isn't it but i think do you know what i think sometimes because you haven't got any yeah backup, not a threat. You we weren't or anything like you know that I mean? and, and it does mean that you get far better access what um What's been, what would you say has been the most difficult one of your adventures, journeys? I'd say difficult, probably, probably going back to the Nile, I'd say. And, and that stays with me for lots of reasons, not least because it was the one that I did. It was the first big one that I did um, where I had, you know, like I said before, I, did, I didn't know whether it was physically <coughs> possible. didn't know whether I could walk that amount of miles. Um, and then something happened um, about a third of the way in that kind of like really brought it home. So uh, an American journalist called uh, Matthew Power was sent out by an American yeah. magazine to, to write about the trip, um, to write about me. 
Um, I didn't know him personally at the time, but you know, he was a lovely guy and um, he started walking with me and, um, and sadly on after just like a couple of days, passed away um, you know when when you've got somebody dying in your arms like that it really brings home the, the seriousness of this and um, makes you really question you know is it is it really worth it and there was a, there was a we had to sort of me and my local guy Boston we were sort of had a few good few days of solid thinking whether or not it was the right thing to do to carry on um, and we thought yeah we, we should really because if we don't then then this whole thing's gone to waste really so yeah. but it's something that um, yeah, it brings into it, you know, into the front of your mind how how severe these things can be. How um, how do you, I mean, how do you, how did you, how did you actually deal with that? As in, like, the, the the not not. I mean, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but emotionally, that's something to deal with. But also, like, administrationally, it's yeah. like. Well, no, it was. I mean, yeah, it was on that on that commission as well, maybe. So it was, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, uh, it was in the middle of nowhere. It was, uh, it was a bloody long day. We, we had to, um, we had to carry, carry his body out of the bush for, for quite a number of miles. Um, mm. We had to arrange, you know, speak with, it took days of, you know, arranging with the local police what to do. I had to call his wife. It was just a, an absolute nightmare in every sense. You know, it really was. So, yeah, and then obviously um, dealing with the fallout afterwards, it, it was a, it was a big thing, and um, yeah, yeah, I've and, and it, it, yeah, it, like I say, it brings everything into question. Yeah, obviously I knew about it, but you know, mm. now talking about it, it makes you think about that whole situation a little bit, a little bit more deeper, I suppose. Mm. But yeah, um, so that that the most difficult one. What's been? What would you say is your most favourite? Um, favourite. Well, one in, in terms of just sheer fun. I think, um, and I've just talked about the gangs and and the sort of uh, the, the the sort of the slightly more um, dangerous parts of walking the Americas. But that was was really made incredible um, because I was with this guy called Alberto. Now I just when I when I. Uh, started this trip um i was in a pretty sort of dark place myself he just got divorced so we we're, we're two miserable blokes basically walking out of mexico <laughs> heading south for six months but he was just such good fun and he had such a sense of humor we ended up just having loads of fun along the way actually and um and i think that goes to if you're with good company you can kind of make make the best of a, a shitty situation um but i think the most i guess the one i'm most proud of i think um is the trip that I did around the Arabian Peninsula. So yeah, it, this was a trip that I'd been wanting to do for five years. After the Nile, it was like, oh, it was either the Himalayas or I, want, I personally wanted to go back to the Middle East because it was a region that I'd been fascinated by by a long time. Um, a region that I'd just been just interested in the culture and the history. But nobody wanted it. You know, I pitched it to all the big names and everyone's like, nah, nobody cares about the Middle East. That's just that's just current affairs. That's news. Nobody wants to go and see it, you know, uh, from, from that perspective, which I just thought was a real shame and a, and a real um, disappointment, actually, because yeah, people weren't agree. willing to open their minds to 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 looking at something from a from a different perspective. 
so I, I was determined to do it anyway. So I said, right, well, if nobody wants to commission it, I'm just going to go and do it. And um, so I did. So me, I got me and uh, two of my mates, the guys that had sort of been with me as, as co-producers on, on previous journeys and set up my own production company. We all chucked in some money and, and went and did it ourselves. And it, and it was a really rewarding trip. Um, yeah. um, and we ended up winning. Um, well, we ended up getting shortlisted for like a broadcast award and all sorts of stuff off the back of it. So it was a, it was a good bit of vindication against the sort of yeah. I was in many ways. Um, <laughs> um, but in terms, just in terms of the trip, it was it was amazing because we went to places. We went up to northern Syria. It's Rojava. We went. We're embedded with the some of the militias in Iraq on like the last battles against ISIS. Um, <laughs> we went through uh, Yemen. Which was completely off limits at that time. We, we got managed to get the first um, tourism visa into Saudi Arabia um, ever. I think went through Lebanon with Hezbollah. We went through Western Syria with the Russians. I mean, it was just bonkers. The whole thing was just, you know, crazy. But you know, to go and see it at that time, to to be in those moments and and see all these really historic things happening, um, and to take calculated risks and be bold, but also measured you know everything we did on that trip was was considered and measured and and we got away with it um and we got away with it because it was properly planned and, and done properly with the right people yeah that was <clears throat> that was i do remember it i mean because obviously one of the guys you were talking about is tom cross isn't it yeah yeah um but um it's a shame i find it a shame as well that 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 wasn't initially picked up but it's also it's a i'm, I'm glad that you it was a bit of a Fuck you to the <laughs> powers that be. I'm, I'm, yeah, that that was that's a good thing to come out of it, I suppose. Um, what for all these trips? What is it? What do you keep in mind? How do you keep your sort of like resilience going? Because you've you've spoken about you know the, the distances walked, the environments, the terrains, the people, people dying as well. Unfortunately. Mm-hmm. What, what is it that you keep in the back of your mind to keep yourself going? I mean, at the most sort of flippant angle, it would be, I, I, it's better than having a real job, isn't it? <laughs> I think it's, I think it's like genuinely a sense of, um, I just feel really bloody lucky that I get to do this for a job. And so it makes it all worthwhile, all the struggles and all the, um the inconveniences and everything else are small fry because i get to do this amazing job that i really really love and that luckily for me the the sense of curiosity hasn't sort of worn off you know we all get a bit jaded now and again um but you know i still love traveling i still go into new places and and meeting interesting people and i do i I think that's the, the, the 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 great bit is i get to meet mega people all over the world yeah. and um and do things and, and i'm my own boss and i get to choose you know what trips i do all, all the sort of um ideas have been mine and um and and i really enjoy that and building new things and being creative i think and um i just i, I have to pinch myself when i sort of um you know uh, sometimes when i think you know i've written uh, eight books i'm sort of working on nine and ten at the minute and um yeah i just think it's it's um i I feel it's not pride because you know there's any number of elements of luck along the way but at the same time as as long as i can keep doing this stuff i think it's kind of my responsibility and and duty to myself and my friends that that i should keep going and and uh, making the most of it 
Yeah, yeah. What? Um, I'll, this is a personal sort of question. What's your? You've written eight books. You've got more coming. Do you enjoy that part of it as well? Do you enjoy the bit where you get to put pen to paper and and almost? It's another way of reliving the experiences you've already had. Yeah. So the writing actually was was something that I wanted to do. You know, before TV, like I say, TV almost came along a bit by accident, whereas. Mm-hmm. The writing was something I was already passionate about. You know, I I'd sort of already sort of done a bit with with um, with my degree at university, and and so it wasn't a massive leap to then be writing books. But the hard bit, of course, is getting them published. Uh, you know, there's lots of good writers out there, but it's it's just sometimes very difficult to to convince other people that they're worth reading. So obviously, TV makes that a lot easier, doesn't it? So this, they, the two go hand in hand. But I do, I really enjoy the, because the TV, obviously, the side of the, the shows and the documentaries um, are, uh, are, you know, are obviously edited to to meet the sort of um, the requirements of TV. Whereas with the books, I get a lot more freedom myself to to tell the sort of behind the scenes stories and my own motivations. And, and I actually really enjoy writing and I've written all my own books and just, just really enjoy that process of coming up with an idea and then how many months later seeing it in, in a book form. It's very rewarding. Yeah. 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 What, um, <clears throat> so we've obviously gone through this bonkers year of 2020. It's been a bit of a weird, weird place. What, what have you been planning whilst we've been locked down and, you know, what's what's next for you oh well i had loads of trips that have all been cancelled this year so i mean i'm hoping that some of them will get you know well you know who knows when when this thing will end but um i'd like to think that that come the spring um or certainly next summer that we'll be traveling again um i've got a couple of other right you know expedition ideas that i'd like to do i've this year in between the you know the various lockdowns and um and just before i took up um paramotoring actually I, i'd always but bizarrely being a para i'd always had a bit of a fear of turbulence <laughs> i didn't like flying so I, I thought that's just nonsense i need to get over that so i thought the best way to do it would be to <laughs> start doing paramotoring um which i did so i did it i started in chamonix in um, in january <clears throat> and then um i've done it i've done it in between the lockdowns in the uk and um so i'm doing a bit of doing a bit more of that and i, I might try and integrate some of that into my expeditions rather than just walking feet are getting a bit tired now <laughs> i've heard about this paramotor in this lot. can you explain a little bit about that it's great fun so it's, it's like paragliding but rather than you don't need a mountain you can take off anywhere basically a bit of flat land right. um so you've got this big fan strapped to your back basically a big lawnmower fan and um and you, you know it, it's great it's, it's really really easy to learn um and it means that you can, you know, do these quite cool cross-country trips without the need to um, to have any hills, basically. What's so, the- you know, two of my mates did it with with very little experience. They ended up flying across Australia in like less than two weeks, just landing in like um, you know petrol stations, filling up again, and off you go. You can fly for another two, three hours. So it's, it's under ca- you. You've got a canopy. What's the canopy? Got a canopy. You've just got a normal wing. Um, but then you've got this this sort of um, this this little fan strapped to your back with a little with a little two stroke uh, engine to it. So how long how long does the fuel last? Um, well, if you've got a sort of full tank and good wind, you can fly for a couple of hours. You can you can do if the wind's behind you, you can you can probably do three four hundred kilometres. So you can do some good 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 yeah. distance. Yeah. And what hap- yeah, but what happens when it runs out of fuel? You don't. Well, then if, I mean, you you try and you plan it to so your land. You try and plan it to so your land before then. Yeah, <laughs> but. <laughs> 
if you but even if the engine fails you still it's just like it's just then becomes a paraglider so if the engine fails at you know 2000 feet you just then yeah. find a spot to land and glide down as you would normally there's it's, it's like a it's a ram air it's a it's just a, just just a square yeah sure, yeah 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 it's just like yeah it does I don't know come along we'll, uh, we'll we'll go flying it's great fun the thing is I'm, I'm interested but again i I'm like you with the whole turbulence thing. Obviously, obviously parachuted, and sometimes when you're up there, you hit, you go through, you do go through turbulence. And I'm like, ah, I'm, I don't know whether I'm happy about this shit. <laughs> I know, but I think there's there's um, there's something quite nice about because you've got the motor, you can kind of get yourself out of most situations, and you feel yeah. completely in control. So it's definitely been a, a lesson for me in like just having a bit of trust in the kit and stuff. Yeah, yeah. It does. I am. I'm intrigued. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. I will come. Maybe. I've got a thing about heights as well. You know. Yeah. I've got. A healthy, I've got a healthy respect for them. I like. I like challenging myself. But maybe that's yeah. something I do. Maybe it's something I definitely need to do. It's, it's definitely helped me. I was the same. I. I. I hate heights. Don't like turbulence. Can't really. You know. I. I can. I'd, I'd rather take a train than an aeroplane. But it's definitely helped me get over that a bit. Right. Okay. <laughs> so. Um, <laughs> That, so is that the next thing, do you think? It's going to be... Well, I do. I mean, it's the problem I found with... I think what, what's worked really well with the walking expeditions is that it's relatable. You know, it's, yeah. it's everyone with a pair of legs and, and walks to the shops thinks in their own subconscious that, oh, I could do that, I could walk an aisle. And I think yeah. that that's, what, that's what's worked really well is the simplicity. When you start bringing bits of kit into expeditions and it, be, it kind of creates a bit of a barrier between you and the audience so I, I don't yeah. know whether it's something I'll do on TV but it's definitely something I'm, I, I really enjoy um, from a from just having a bit of fun perspective and actually I think that's something I've promised myself a bit rather than because it's been so busy with work the last sort of six seven years and, and it's just been yeah. like a bit of a conveyor belt now it's like I'll go away do a trip get back write the book do the speaking tour plan the next one off you go <laughs> I've not really left much time for actually just having holidays bit of fun and all the rest of it so i'm trying to factor that in now and just not take quite so much on yeah okay. so actually this this whole you know pandemic has given me a bit of time for that so uh can't really complain too much it's been good for you yeah it, it slowed you down which is probably yeah. something that you needed maybe i don't know <laughs> yeah but, um now i'm gonna go um, there's one more question before i then go and i've got to consult instagram to find out who's which question I'm going to ask to, for someone to win a bottle of Talisker? But um, what do you what do you hope the lessons that people take away from watching or reading all about your your adventures? Really, what what is it? I, I know I think I know the answer, but you know, being... I think it comes back to two things really. One is, and they're both interlinked. One is going back to that sense of appreciating and embracing risk yeah i think that places are rarely as dangerous as the news tells you um and we can all achieve far more than we are led to believe i think that's the first key one and then linked in with that is having a bit of just faith and trust in in other people actually because like i say going i'm still here and i've been walking around some fairly what we might think as dodgy places it's like actually if you just go and see with your own eyes and experience things yourself um, then you'll be often very reassured, and and it's definitely re sort of restored my faith in humanity a bit by going to places and and just seeing just how 
hospitable people off not and and that's not to say there aren't dangers there aren't bad people of course there are but like the the, the the good really outweighs the bad yeah i think i'd agree and um i'd like to like people listening they should keep revisiting your you know the the, the tv shows you've done and your books because i think there's a there's a danger at the moment that people are being told that risk is something that we shouldn't do we shouldn't mm. take risk and that and it, it it doesn't encourage people to push themselves out of their comfort zone so yeah, yeah i wholeheartedly yeah. agree that you know if you haven't watched lev's shows or, or even even if you have go and watch them again because it it just shows you that it is worth it is it's worth it it's worth it because it develops you as an individual doesn't it definitely 100% yeah. um mate right i'm going to now I've got to go into Instagram. Right, there's a load of there's been a load of questions fired in. So the question that is going to win a bottle of Talisker is um, Stumitage UK. So that's S T U A R M I T A G E UK. His question is: Whilst Levison is a cool name, it is an unusual one. Where did it come from? Oh right, okay. <laughs> so. It's actually my dad's name, right? His, his dad's name, his dad's name, and his dad's name. So there's been five Leveson Woods, all of whom have been soldiers of some description, and it goes back to the sort of um, the mid 19th century when it was the the fashion to name your if you were a peasant on the working on the land to name your son after the local aristocrat. So I'm not from aristocratic stock but i think my my great 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 grandfather was probably sort of making pots for the uh, for the local landlord and, and named his kids after after him so that's where it comes from so it's an old it's an old sort of norman french name and uh, and yeah it's kind of just stuck in the family that's quite a cool story and i'm i'm i'm, I'm <laughs> pleased you know the history of your name as well because that could <laughs> question could have fallen flat as well <laughs> mate um i'm aware of time so I really appreciate you coming on. I'm apologise again for the time change. Quickly. No, my pleasure. Thanks, buddy. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. And it's been great talking to you. And it's also going to make me uh, watch your programmes again. <laughs> nice one. Cheers, mate. Well, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. And um, yeah, catch up for a, a beer after this uh, lockdown's done, eh? Thanks very much to Levison. And I hope you all enjoyed it. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you don't already and follow me and the Book of Man for the latest news. Thanks again to Talisker for supporting this podcast, and thanks to you all for listening. See you again soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.